Welcome to The Conversation by Hayes Talent Solutions, bringing you insights into the world of work. In this series, we will be talking to industry experts about market trends, topics, and strategies, and how they're affecting organizations like yours. I'm your host, Alyssa Levitt. Hi, welcome everyone. Um, my name is Robert Moffat, uh, and I am the uh, SVP for Corporate Solutions for Hayes Talent Solutions, uh, the recruitment and services outsourcing organization of Hayes PLC. Um, today, we're going to be talking about what the pandemic is teaching us uh, about supplier partnerships. Uh, and joining me for this part of the conversation, we have David Swift, the Global Head of Corporate Services Procurement for Novartis and Paul Vincent, the Global Head of Services Procurement for Hayes Talent Solutions. I'm going to hand over to David and Paul for a brief introduction. David, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is David Swift, working with Novartis uh, in Basel, Switzerland for the last 10 years. Um, experienced in many parts of procurement, but have a particular interest uh, in the world of work and uh, the coming together of Temp and Perm and, uh, of course, the supplier relationships uh, involved in uh, making all of that happen. Yeah, and hi Rob, uh, Paul Vincent. I um, joined Hayes in uh, May last year and uh, very much got a, uh, a, I've got a three-pronged career. I've been on the buying side, the selling side and the client side. Uh, and so hopefully those, uh, those, those experiences will add value to the conversation today. Cool. Thanks Paul, thanks David. Well, the last couple of weeks or months uh, have been quite a turbulent time for us and uh, a number of um, organisations have been through quite a bit of change uh, and the term supplier partnerships taken on a whole new depth and meaning uh, during the current COVID-19 uh, crisis uh, and a lot of organisations are actually really understanding how important and how strong or unfortunately in some cases weak some of these supplier partnerships are and that's the subject that we'll be talking through today. Um, Paul, um, starting with yourself, you've obviously worked, as you said there, you've worked on both sides, you've been on the, both the supplier uh, and the supplier side. Uh, with reference to these supplier partnerships, do you think there's enough understanding and appreciation from both sides of those of what makes an important relationship or what is important to those organisations? I, th I think classically, I mean, it's a depends answer. Uh, I do personally think that my approach has definitely been influenced by having got the experience of looking through both ends of the telescope uh, and you know I think there are a number of pretty regularly uh, experienced blind spots. I think firstly that you know often buying organizations don't always clear enough way you know they they think they know exactly what they're after uh, they will often ask for a solution uh, without really defining the problem statement and so when they go out to, to market and try and get suppliers to really answer their need in the sort of way that they think is uh, clear enough to make a buying decision, uh, often you find that these suppliers have more questions and need that clarity in order to, to avoid, frankly, you know, making a proposal around uh, some elements of, of telepathy. I think the second thing is that often you don't really know uh, particularly if you're working with a brand new customer, you don't really know the rhythm of the organization until you're there. And so a number of assumptions that you might make around how fast you can become productive, uh, what sort of quality of information you're going to encounter, what sort of engagement you're going to find in that client organization are very much things you have to, to learn and, and learn through experience. 
And then the third area, I guess, which is most prevalent is this whole area of over-negotiation. And suppliers will often oversell, right, because they're trying to differentiate their offering and they're trying to stand out amongst their competition. And buyers can often over-negotiate. And they sometimes believe it's a, it's a privilege to serve. You know, it's, a, it's always going to be, their business is always going to be something that the suppliers will be very interested and receptive to. So I think it's a depends answer. I think the level of understanding on both sides is really important. Um, but often you don't get there until you've had that experience of a project or you know, and uh, you know, a particular initiative within that within a client organisation. Sure. First of all, that's actually quite interesting. I mean, that's talking about sort of the the buy stage of the cycle. We'll come on to the sustainability of the relationship um, going on. But um, interesting, and I'd like to open this up to David. You made, made a good point there, Paul. The, there's two different ways of purchasing. Sometimes an organization will come to market with the challenge, and you know, what is the, and sometimes they will come with a predefined solution, a request for a predefined solution. Um, mm-hmm. David, I'll be interested in your view, uh, you know, as most recently or currently on the, uh, the purchasing side, what's your preference? I mean, I personally have sat on the other side, but do you, do you tend to go, this is the challenge, tell me how to uh, uh, solve it, or do you like to go to market with a predefined um, preferred solution that you're asking people to bid against? Yeah, um, I think that's a good question, Rob, and I think uh, a bit like Paul, it depends. Um, <laughs> you know, if you, if, if you, um, it depends on the, the mindset of the, the buyer. Um, if you're the type of buyer that wants to commoditize everything and drive the price to its lowest uh, you know, lowest point, then having a very well-defined offering enables you to commoditize and therefore create direct competition and, and drive cost savings, which unfortunately many buyers are measured, not uniquely, but principally on, on that. Um, if you may be a more enlightened uh, buyer, um, and I'd like to consider myself one of those, um, when you're going out, particularly for outsourced services, for example, you know, an MSP or, or, or yeah. staffing, whatever, um, I like to think that the reason you're doing it is because you realize that other people can do it better than you can. Or perhaps it's not strategic or whatever, but certainly, you know, you wouldn't go out and ask someone who doesn't do it as well as you to take it over from you. So if they do it better than you, why be over-prescriptive? Um, so I, I like to, to try and say, look, here's the sort of the general thing we're looking to do, but you're the experts. So you tell me uh, the best way to do it. And then I'm looking to see amongst the potential suppliers who comes up with the best ideas, who clearly understands uh, the area we're talking about. And, and then, of course, you know, there's obviously going to be a commercial element, but before you get to the commercial element, you know, who's got the the wherewithal to present something that you think uh, is going to make sense for your business. Um, so that's my personal preference. But again, you know, if you're buying widgets and a widget is yeah. a widget, I don't yeah. need to get into this, you know, explain to me a widget. So just give me the best price for that widget. It's a standardized product. So that's why I say it depends, but more sophisticated services are, ra- are rarely widgets and one size fits all. So I think um, I prefer to engage the supplier to give me, uh, to get, you know, that they give me the best ideas and not just the best ideas, but if I engage with them, I want their best people um, as well, because in the business that you're in, um, it very much uh, depends on the team you get and not the sales team, because you have great salespeople, then you get handed over to operations. And if the operational people are not great, uh, you're not going to get a good product or service. So, 
uh, I want to make sure that I'm getting the best um, from whoever I'm dealing with. Uh, I don't want the B or the C team. And, and Paul, you've obviously done it on, uh, you, uh, you've sat on both sides. Obviously, working telecoms, you bought services and widgets, I imagine, as well. Mm. So, uh, mm. any, any other thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, echoing what, what David said, I do think that um, there are uh, buyers who find it very difficult to get into the lens of how their internal, how their how their services are being consumed, and I think that that's where the the question needs to be. It's not uh, what are we buying in terms of what we are paying for, it's what are we using it for, and how best do we consume that, and therefore what does the supplier need to do to contribute to best return on investment or the best way of consuming. And often suppliers don't get the insight that they need on yeah. the consumption question because sometimes you know, procurement organisations are not as close to those consumption experiences as they could be. Um, and so this is one of the things that manifests itself in is this idea that um, you respond to the RFP and you only ask questions of the RFP process. You don't talk to anybody who is really close to the need until much deeper into the process. Um, and often there's the presumption that by doing that, you're going to neutralize the offer. You know, you're going to compare like with like, but all it means is you're comparing assumption with assumption. And, and some people have got better assumptions than others. Yeah. 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 I think that's why, um, you know, I, in the past, uh, particularly for outsourcing deals, what I've done is um, a request for information as a first step to help you form an idea of what's possible. And, uh, and then only then when you've got a clear idea of uh, what suppliers in the market are willing and able to do, then you do a formal RFP with uh, more well-defined uh, requests. But the RFI is really a foundational stage that allows you to understand uh, what you can potentially do because you may not know what's possible in the market. You know, there's, you, you don't know what suppliers are able to do necessarily, uh, or you want to provoke a discussion to try and get them to go beyond uh, their traditional uh, model and, and offer things that they may not, may not offer uh, on an everyday basis. And uh, I'd agree, uh, we from the provider side, uh, uh, David, I concur. And I think that's, I do, I, I recognize that that is becoming more common. So a multi-stage process with sort of a workshop middle mm -hmm. section is now becoming mm -hmm. more common so you know a request for information and then a collaborative design yeah. phase you know you can yeah. still you know, let, you know we're still we're still in a commercial world so you still need to price against it at the end and there is an element of normalization um but the to your point around a, a and b teams they're the processes we commit our a team to as well so mm -hmm. if you're looking at you know the a team to contribute to you and, and again if you're coming to market for a service and if you're coming to some specialist providers there's obviously some recognition that there is some expertise to be brought in so going, yeah. going back to your conversation earlier win 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 you know we all want the best deal uh yeah. for everyone so um you know that's the process that we would uh, we would advocate on our side yeah and you know what i've observed certainly in the pharmaceutical industry and maybe it's the case in others as well uh, they tend to employ a lot of smart people quite a lot of engineers and scientists yeah and they love to engineer and do science so they tend to be very prescriptive in some cases. You've got to kind of fight that um, because they love to get involved and, and redesign everything. And um, we tend to make things overcomplicated. Uh, I'm the first to say that. And um, 
but you know we don't we never admit that you know, because we're always right we're the customer um, <laughs> naturally right the customer is always right so we would never <laughs> we would never own up to you know maybe we created some of the complexity uh, and and it's always going to be the supplier but in reality it's not um so i think sometimes you can be your own worst enemy um and the smarter the people are often that's the case unfortunately yeah. and they just love to, to 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 be involved and do things and i've seen the other time as well is maybe when you move from the sales process into operations and things don't go as smoothly as you would have liked and then there's an automatic tendency to start to micromanage yeah. and that can be the kiss of death um, because then you get into a a situation where the suppliers starts get frustrated. You're frustrated because the supplier is not doing quite what you'd like them to do or up to the level. Uh, and then you start to micromanage and then the supplier gets frustrated because you're micromanaging and then you get into this vicious circle of really going not where you need to be. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting tension working from our side around um, what a, one of our clients might want and what is one of our, what is a client's best interest. And the two of them don't necessarily always align. So it's it's an interesting dynamic trying to in, encourage towards the uh, what they need rather than what they might want. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you know, follow, following up what you said, say moving into operations. So we've talked a bit sort of about the sort of the purchasing cycle, but uh, and again we, we see the same thing from our side. You know that sometimes the parties do change. You know there mm -hmm. may not be the continuity. But um, Dave, again, moving on to the sustainability, what are what do you think are the key ingredients to success when we're talking about you know, long-term, successful and sustainable supplier partnerships? Um, I think, you know, if like in all walks of life, uh, relationships, good relationships are, are built on a few fundamental foundational elements, you know, whether it's with your wife, your friends or in business, right? It's the same thing. Um, and, and for me, one of the most fundamental things is trust. Okay. Um, you have got to trust each other. Um, if you don't trust, i.e., if I have in the back of my mind, uh, you know, will they screw me? Uh, you know, if I if I show, you know, open up and show them everything, um, will I get? Will that be used against me one day? On both the supplier side and and the buyer side. So how do you get to a how do you get to a stage where you can trust the other party and, and it's, it's reciprocated? Um, so I think that that to me is really important. Um, you've got to be um, credible, i.e., you've got to show that you know what you're doing um, otherwise the trust won't be there i think that's 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 natural um, you know if i'm bringing in a, a partner um, i want to make sure that they're going to do an excellent job now we all know uh, even the very best suppliers can sometimes hit bumps in the road that happens right it's 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 part of life it's how they deal with that uh, and do they you know do they become very defensive or not or do they say look okay have a problem we're going to fix it and we learn from those problems so they're kind of like tests uh, of the attitude i guess um, and this thing uh, you know we talked about it a little bit earlier negotiation process uh, winning and losing um I, I was lucky enough to to spend a week in this harvard university negotiation uh, training and uh, what i learned there um, which was remarkable was the, the basis of the negotiation was trying to grow the size of the pie not assume the pie was a certain size and get the biggest slice of that pie. And, and that's just a, a, a mindset change because if you're trying to grow the size of the pie, automatically you have to collaborate. Um, if you say that the pie is a set size, I'm going to fight you to get the bigger slice, right? Yeah. I'm going to win and you're going to lose or, or vice versa. And I think um, some people struggle with that. 
because it's a very different way of thinking. Um, and they're used to, you know, a certain style of negotiation. Um, and, and then, of course, the way people are incentivized as well also drives behaviors, unfortunately, and the wrong incentive then uh, can get destructive behaviors. So sometimes you've got to step aside from that. And um, I, I would say to my team, um, yes, you have savings targets. You've got to do those. Uh, you're going to get your bonus paid on it, but get them out of the way quickly and then get down to the real work, um, i.e. creating value for the business. Yeah, and I just had a couple of thoughts on that as well, um, Rob. I think authenticity in the relationship is is so crucial because, you know, if you embark on a sales process and you say, we want you to be our partner, and then as soon as you hit a bump in the road, you default to, well, actually, you're a vendor. And, you know, you very lose that authenticity and that trust really, really quickly. And I often characterize um, goodwill in the relationship as almost being like a hot air balloon. You know, it takes both parties to keep the balloon inflated. Mm-hmm. Very easy to pop the balloon, um, but both parties have got to keep that, you know, balloon inflated. And I think that that's so important and it's so easy to miss, particularly in the in sort of situation we're in, you know, with, with COVID in the last sort of six to eight weeks. You know, a lot of a lot of the, the how suppliers had been managed in the last five years will be proving how strong they are in the last six to eight weeks and um, people will find out things they never realized and positively and negatively. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Paul. And, and um, you know, it's a bit like things are going fine until they're no longer going fine. And um, until they're tested, um, you don't know. And uh, I recall uh, another major crisis back in 08 or 09, a financial crisis. I was in a different industry, but it was, I was in the chemical business and uh, the company I worked for um, lost 75% of its business over one quarter. Um, and the prices of oil chemicals are driven by hydrocarbons. And if you remember, oil spiked at $147 and then it crashed down uh, to, I can't remember, $30 or $40. And your, your cost of your inventory and, and havoc that plays. But I, I do recall um, certain suppliers really standing up to be counted. Uh, you know, we were in a crisis. And uh, so there were certain suppliers that stood up and, and were counted. And I think it was because um, we treated them in a way, way before the, 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 the crisis came, you know, they knew that we were a good partner, that we treated them fairly. Um, and when they saw that we were in a crisis, they stood up and they, and they came in and they helped us. They wouldn't do that um, otherwise. So, you know, They'll carry on the normal business relationship, but when you need a helping hand, you're drowning and they're going to pull you out of the water. Uh, they won't give you that hand if uh, you've been you know, stomping on them all the time. But you only realize that when you hit a crisis. So. <laughs> Following that through around re- supplier relationships in a crisis, in so Hayes Talent Solutions as a managed service provider or managed service program supplier, you know, we act as a, in effect, a broker, you know, between our end clients, but there's two other parties within our relationships as well, where we effectively right. have supplier relationships. So, you know, we have our end customer, but we work with staffing suppliers or services providers. And also we're, we're, we're unique, unique in a way in the fact that our product, if you could call it that, is a human. 
Um, so our, our product has a decision. We mentioned widgets earlier. Widgets very ch rarely change their mind, um, or it's true, or, very know, rarely, yeah. Or, or have an or have an off day. So it's a slightly more complex relationship. So you know, to both of you, you know, bringing that in, you know, there's more parties in the relationship here. How how does that how does that increase either more simplicity or complexity, probably? And, you know, and what are some of the other techniques, or you know, how could we, or how does Hayes address that, or has Novartis address that? How do we incorporate that within a? You know, we said win-win. This is how do we create the win-win-win-win relationship for those parties? Yeah, uh, if I go first, I mean, I think that this concept of you're either enabling your supply chain or you're controlling your supply chain. So if you're enabling it, you know, the mindset is how can we set you up for success? How do we make sure that the way we go about it is going to deliver an end-to-end -end solution that everybody gets benefit from? If you come at it from a controlling mentality, then it's very much around, um, you know, process, lowest lowest cost win. Now, you, you, you cannot avoid it becoming more transactional if you have a controlling mindset rather than more of a strategic holistic approach if you're more enabling and what we we do as you know rob is we we try to wrap that into an overall framework and we guide our clients and our supply chain through that framework so at the front end it's how do we create a strategy that's probably tailored to the needs of our client business how they want to deploy resources back to this idea of consumption and being really clear about that how do we then map the suppliers against that strategy that's going to be the right fit now, how do we make sure that we're then onboarding them in the program so that they are set up for success? How do we continually to be a measure and track what they're doing and then help them develop? Uh, and then you know, how do we effectively run an engagement process and an audit process throughout the entirety of, of the program that has the spirit of continuous improvement at its heart? And you're never one and done. You know, if, you know, if you create a preferred supplier list, now, the last thing you want to do is say, here are our suppliers for the next three years. You know, um, you've got to think about it's always agile. Companies are only as good as the last thing they deliver, the only last thing they supply. And so you've got to have that agility and constant review in the process. But by the same token, you've got to judge people on realistic objectives and realistic challenges. Um, and so that's where this whole end-to-end -end, uh, process and having something that is a uh, a very easily easy to articulate framework you know I, I think has a massive benefit not just in our industry but for generally you know uh, in terms of how you manage effective supply relationships yeah i my, my my personal view on this is um i think you know procurement's job in in this area is to pr provide a supply chain of talent to the business and we do that uh, obviously in partnership with staffing companies and msps and the outcome for the business is we get the best talent uh, when we need it. And we have a process that is hassle-free, i.e. it's easy. Um, that to me is, is, is really what all hiring managers uh, are looking for. Um, however, I would say, I mean, the recruitment business, uh, certainly on maybe on the permanent side, I think is completely dysfunctional and the human element is very often forgotten. I do think uh, if I compare it with let's call it the contingent uh, side. I think the contingent side works a lot better uh, because I think the processes are, are a lot clearer, a lot more professional uh, in, in most cases. Um, and I think people are, you know, are treated um, 
treated better in that process because they know what to expect. Whereas on the permanent side, it's, it's literally, it's a mess. And, and I'm shocked uh, at how companies allow um, their recruitment to go. And I think the, <laughs> the impact on their uh, brands, they don't realize how, how uh, bad it is. Um, so I think there's two different worlds here between temp and perm. And I do think the, the, the uh, non-perm part is um, much better. Uh, I, I would agree there you know there's more structure around sort of the temporary recruitment uh, and in fairness at the moment there isn't a lot of permanent hiring going on in a lot of organizations um what, what I'd be interested for and I, uh, Paul I'll come to you first and then David you second is we've talked about relationships with suppliers and how us mm. working with them you know has increased their you know their, uh, having suppliers that are committed to you and you committed to them you get good great those better relationships uh, the, the two over the last couple of months, I suppose, two of the things that have been most affected in our world are you know, the life sciences or pharmaceutical industry um, and people uh, and, you know, the people. So, so Paul, uh, in you know, the MSP industry or the recruitment industry, you know, people are a key, key bit there and therefore working with suppliers is key to keep them involved and them, in, uh, you know, them engaged and therefore their workers. And the same on the other side, David. So I'd be interested in your relative industry, sort of the, the people industry, if I can call that, and then the pharmaceutical industry. Are there any specific initiatives or additional things you've done to support them, enabling those suppliers in those areas that have reached towards for you? Um, Paul, for you first. Well, I think, um, I mean, very, very specifically, I mean, we, we know that the, the recruitment market, as you say, in the last six to eight weeks has absolutely transformed. And we've been very significantly affected in terms of the overall size and shape of our managed programs. The suppliers that service those programs have all been massively affected. And I think the big thing that we've tried to do is be transparent and be proactive in going to literally the entirety of our supply base, which is you know, roughly two and a half thousand globally, and really saying to them, let's, let's have a conversation. Now, how, how are you dealing with this? And do you feel confident that, you know, if this lasts for three to six months, you know, your organisation can continue to maintain itself and maintain its continuity of supply to these programmes? And if, and if you don't feel confident, then let's have a conversation about how we can, can help. That's been very positively received by both our clients and by the supply chain. And it's really bred some very interesting conversations because not only have we got direct feedback from them, but it's also meant that we've had a need to refresh which suppliers are dealing with what programs, you know, what, what programs are, you know, are perhaps in need of some, you know, fundamental rethinking. And so the insights and the intelligence we've got just from being proactive and asking that question will, will pay dividends for for, for the next you know months ahead and uh and we feel that um from our supply side perspective they feel it's a very positive um move from from our point of view yeah it's quite interesting because it's quite a quite a controversial question how confident are you so that there, there, there's an element of commercial and pride involved in that as well so it's interesting of course, that you said yeah. it's greeted, you said it's interesting you said it greeted well and we got some mm -hmm. um good feedback there. um david the whole world's looking to your industry um for the answers <laughs> yeah. in this bit and you know there is a Thomas the hour <laughs> yes, there's a complex ecosystem that supports the pharmaceutical and the life sciences industry. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the hydrocarbons, the chemical, there's similar kind of supply chains and fitting in as well. So, you know, what are the, 
within what you can share, are there any sort of additional initiatives or things that have, um, have breeded the commitment of those suppliers during this challenging time? Yeah, look, I think, you know, the, the nature of, uh, the, of drug development, uh, so in our industry, um, in particular, the length of time it takes a molecule to work its way from the lab to the patient, you know, it's, th these are processes that are, are by definition, let's call them long. Um, so we have to take, as an industry, we have to take the long view. There is nothing that happens quickly in the pharmaceutical world. And Paul knows this very well, um, and I've said this time and time again to suppliers, if you want to work in the life sciences industry, um, you've got to re remember this is a marathon and not a sprint. There will be no quick wins, right? You are going to have to be tenacious, you're going to have to be in for the long haul, and if you're not willing to do that, don't even start, right? So that, that's something that, that hasn't changed uh, at all. I, I think what we're, you know, what we're seeing with COVID is um, supply chains have been tested, uh, certainly physical supply chains. Uh, you, you may or may not know, but 80% uh, of the drugs sold in the United States, their APIs or active pharmaceutical ingredients uh, are sourced out of China. Um, the American government and, and the, the American people in general uh, have suddenly woken up to this fact. I mean, that's a very high degree of dependency. Um, and whether it's China or somewhere else, it doesn't matter. Nobody wants to be overly dependent on an entity, a country, a region, whatever. Um, and, and then the, sort of the whole geopolitical stuff that's going on, it doesn't help things. So I think the industry has said, okay, we you know, we may have gone too far in some cases with this low-cost sourcing. Um, we need to re-examine this. How, um, how strong are our supply chains? Now they're being tested, and we need to really go back and have a look at that. And you can say the same with services as well. So there's a lot of efforts gone into, you know, checking if our suppliers are, are going to go under or not. Uh, you know, how to, are we going to have problems in, in supply? Um, the pharmaceutical industry hasn't been, uh, at least for now, uh, impacted. In fact, they've seen sales grow, probably as a result of people panic buying, um, but certainly haven't seen any negative impact on their sales. So we're not one of those industries that's back to the wall, uh, that's you know scrambling just to survive. And I think if you're in that situation where you're scrambling to survive, your behavior will obviously be quite different than the pharmaceutical industry. So we can take uh, the long view. Um, so we're looking to, you know, make sure the suppliers that are, are working with us uh, are, you know, they still have a heartbeat and they can still deliver whatever it may be uh, that we're buying. And um, I, I, I tend to think in the industry that Hayes is in, um, we will see Novartis has not put in place um, a hiring ban, but almost it, it, it's almost similar to they're just saying, look, uh, we're only going to hire uh, where it's absolutely necessary. But in general, we're not hiring uh, permanent hires. And I think um, lots of businesses are doing the same. It's kind of just wait and see. And I anticipate there will be a sharp increase in uh, temporary uh, labor because the work doesn't go away. Um, and if you can't hire, you've got to find another way of doing it. So I think we'll see a shift. Uh, I think the this whole idea of the future of work uh, and something I was selling in Novartis, the, you know, the um, the coming together of temp and perm to manage it in a more strategic way. Uh, we're getting traction now in Novartis uh, on this whole idea. And that's largely, I think, because of the timing right now. People are waking up to this. So I think, um, you know, the pharmaceutical industry will change as a result. Um, you know, we're going to have a lot less, uh, shall we say, you know, working from offices. Um, 
I think a lot of the tourism that people were doing traveling around the world, uh, there'll be a lot less of that too. Uh, I think we'll be more open to alt you know, alternate uh, models of, of work uh, than we were in the past because the pharmaceutical industry is quite conservative, high, highly regulated, so it's kind of in the genes. Um, so I think we'll see, you know, if not immediately, but in the medium term, some uh, significant uh, changes. You mentioned earlier the 2008-2009 and whether that put the balance for purchasing lent it a little bit more towards cost. It'll be interesting to see if um, the current situation leans it potentially in a slightly different direction. Um, I'd, I'd really like to think that. Uh, and again, I think it depends on the city. You know, if you're in a situation where your business, you're, you're like, you're potentially going to go bust. Yeah. Uh, the most important thing for you is cash and you're going to grab it cash whatever way you can. And you're going to think in quite short term ways. And that's just survival, right? That's, and you can't blame uh, businesses that do that. Um, however, I think if what I referred to earlier about the supply chain and, and you know, having API sourced from Southeast Asia, China in particular, why? Because they are uh, cheaper. Uh, you know, European or American producers can't compete with the prices that China can do it at. So if you focused on the price or the cost, uh, you put yourself at risk in terms of your supply chain resilience. I think there was a realization that we need to now shift um, uh, somewhat away from the cost and look more at resilience uh, and guaranteeing of supply. And therefore, there will be an increase in cost. It's inevitable. But the industry is more than able to absorb that. Um, you know, the margins are healthy, so it's, it shouldn't be a problem. Uh, we're lucky that way. Some, some other industries are in different situations. So I would anticipate there would be a shift. But, um, you know, lots of companies are run by accountants and they, they tend to look at only uh, the bottom line and they may not, they're not supply chain people, they don't necessarily think too much about some of the other considerations. So, if I could be a bit philosophical for a moment, I mean, I think uh, one of the things that I'm seeing through the, through the, sort of the, the lockdown around the world and, uh, and experiencing it myself is the importance of personal interaction so I think actually the questioner of technology, you know, how, what you use technology for, what you don't use technology for. If you think about the heroes, like the heroes are now the people who deliver the weekly shopping. They're the ones who collect your bins. You know, they're the ones that they help they bring the medicines around from the, from the pharmacies. Um, and I think it's maybe be a bit of a reconfiguration of how we do view technology as part of the buying and, and delivery process but as I say that's me being philosophical yeah I, I think the other one David said is the world of work and I, I would concur with your uh, view of the life sciences but it always been a bit conservative on mm -hmm. what, what it what it could or shouldn't do and you know yeah. what it what, what it what it does and what it could do haven't always been the same and I think there's been a loosening in the regulated environments of what is possible and it's going to be very interesting to see the world of work um, over there to with um, yeah yeah absolutely I agree just sort of bringing this uh, bringing this to a nice close. When the two of you have worked in many different industries and many different roles, uh, um, I won't say how many years we've all done it. Um, but for uh, <laughs> for our listeners, we're talking here about you know, supplier partnerships, both in the current situation and long term. You know, and it could be at either the purchasing or the sustainability. What are your key bits of advice? Um, or, or messages that you'd like to leave with everyone. And um, Paul, if I could go to yourself first. Um, it's a big question, Rob. Um, I think number one is you reap what you sow. 
Okay, so the investment you place into a supplier discussion, a supplier partnership, uh, you will get where you will naturally get, depending on how you orchestrate that at the beginning. So that means things like be mindful of cost of sale. You know, suppliers, uh, there is a cost associated with doing business. If you minimize that cost, then you're giving them a reason to view you as a client of choice. So I think that whole concept of, of what do you, how do you want to be perceived as a buying organization and as a good customer, I think would be very worthwhile having more, more front of mind. I think from a buying perspective, I think it's all about thinking about what you're getting back rather than what you're paying. You know, the, the argument of that the less you pay, the more value you get doesn't always ring true. And, and so it's just being bold enough to, to answer that, that, that question. And then the third thing, and I, and I don't know if you remember, David, but when we first met, um, we, we had this conversation around ambition. And it wasn't, you know, here's, here's our solution, here's our portfolio. It was, how ambitious do you want to be? And how can mm -hmm. we help you to get there? And, and I think that type of conversation uh, is so important to really deepen a relationship into what we've been talking about, which is much more collegiate and much more forward thinking. Yeah, no, you're right, Paul. And I think, um, you know, on that note, I would say as a procurement professional, and I encourage uh, all procurement professionals to do this, is to really go beyond the transactional relationship. So, you know, we have a relationship with you, uh, we have KPIs that are operational, all that works fine, but um, that's just the bread and butter. I think a good procurement uh, will look to extract the maximum amount of value out of any relationship. Now, you can't do it with all suppliers, there's just too many, right? and you need an army of people to do that. So you have to pick and choose, right? That's, that's uh, just to qualify that. So if you're one of those suppliers you're not doing it with, you've got to maybe say, well, maybe it's because I'm you know, not considered strategic or whatever, but um, you just can't do it. So you've got to choose those ones uh, and then do it uh, well. But for me, it's about looking to unlock value. And I'm assuming the operations are working well, I don't really want to talk about that um, because that's just you know day-to-day -day stuff. Uh, now, what else can we do? How much more value can we get? And you, you've got to collaborate. It's not about um, you know Paul drop your price so I can make some savings. That's going to hurt your margin because that's not really interesting for you as a supplier. But if I ask the question, Paul, how can we take cost out of the supply chain? It's a different dynamic because that assumes that both of us have a role to play in that. And also assumes that if we can do that, there's benefit on both sides. So again, it's about growing the pie rather than trying to fight over, uh, you know, a given size of the pie. And I think not all procurement functions do that. Uh, they some tend to think short term and they think about their savings and maybe, you know, they get a kick out of that. I don't know, but uh, for me, the the biggest kick I get is trying to create something that maybe other people haven't done uh, and. Um, my success, I measure my own success based on what the business tells me that we are delivering to them in terms of value, not any kind of savings, but in terms of business value. So um, when they're happy uh, and they're giving plaudits out to the procurement group, then I'm happy that we've done a good job. Well, well, well we, all work in, we all work in roles where we effectively have a number of um, uh, customers, both internally and externally. So it's delivering value to those that's important. It's interesting the number of times that word was used in that summary there, um, mm -hmm. which was, uh, uh, and again, uh, 
uh, David is a, um, and Paul like you. It's what excites us and what makes us into it. Well, you know, what we don't do, we don't go to work just to do a job. You know that, that we, we want to achieve something, achieve something, and do something a bit new. And I think that's something that we all yeah. have. Um, well, I'd like to thank um, the two of you uh, and those listening. Uh, so I hope that's been uh, as enjoyable for myself and hopefully beneficial for the others. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Paul, and I'd like to thank you, David. And I, I look forward to seeing. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, both, uh, and Paul, I'm uh, seeing the two of you uh, yeah. in future versions of the conversation. Thanks very much, Rob. Thank, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the conversation. If you liked what you heard, you can follow Hayes Talent Solutions on LinkedIn, where we post daily insights and reminders for upcoming conversations. If you have any questions or suggestions for future podcast episodes, feel free to reach out to us via email at contacttalentsolutions at hayes.com.